This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast, the show where I get to sit down one-on-one with some of the most innovative founders and successful CEOs to talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles and their struggles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. This is episode 122, and today I sat down with Aaron Minnick, the CEO of Draper James. Draper James is a classic American lifestyle brand founded by Reese Witherspoon, inspired by her roots in the South. Erin and I talked about her childhood growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, the different jobs she held prior to becoming CEO at Draper James, why we believe failure should be named something else, and the advice she has for aspiring leaders. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe, tell all of your friends, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. We've got product reviews, monthly podcast recaps, and tips on how you can grow your business, all on our blog at stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. I am sitting here right now with Aaron Minnick, the CEO of Draper James. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Hi, Lee. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Let's just dive right in and kind of to start, tell us about Draper James. What is it? Great. I'd love to. So Draper James is a women's lifestyle brand, which was founded in 2013 by Reese Witherspoon. Um, her. Everybody we, loves her. Everybody does love her. <laughs> and we love working with her on this brand, but it's, it's a great brand. It's an optimistic brand. She founded it. It's a combination of her grandparents' names. Really? Grandparents? What do you mean? So she had one grandparent named Draper and one named James. Like first names or last names? First names. Yes. Draper. That's like a very, I've heard the last name. There's, you know, very big investor family with the last name Draper, but (laughs) I have not heard it as a first name. Yes. And so, you know, she founded it based on the inspiration was her time growing up in the South. And she really felt that there was a white space for this type of product, which is really polished and feminine, not overly feminine, but, you know, clothing that would make women feel great and would be really easy to wear. It really does have that like Southern Belle feeling. Absolutely. Except I am no Southern Belle. That is for sure. <laughs> I am like the farthest thing I think from a Southern Belle. I'm like the <laughs> New York city girl who wears all black. So I, you know, totally different style, but I have to say, I like the white denim jacket that I've got on sporting my Draper James look right Love now. It. This is it as looks close as I can get. Like solid colors only, you know, <laughs> white, black, I can do it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, well, we love prints at Draper James. Um, (laughs) yes, we are. We sell mostly prints, lots Um, of pink. (laughs) Yes. Lots of pink, lots of prints. 
our design team works every season to develop a whole new grouping of prints and you know, our customer really comes to us for that. They're very bright and optimistic and a lot of fun to wear. My inner girliness, like that just gets, you know, like kind of shoved downwards in the world of entrepreneurship <laughs> and like tech <laughs> was loving all the colors and vibrant prints. But yeah, it's a really cool brand. I'm excited to have you on the show and hear your story and becoming CEO of such a cool brand. Where are you calling in from right now? So I'm at the Draper James offices in New York City. Many people think that we're based in Nashville. Our flagship store is in Nashville, but most of the corporate team is based in New York. And so that's where I'm calling today from. Nice. And so let's go talk about your childhood a little bit. Where are you from originally and what was it like growing up? So I am a nice Midwestern girl. <laughs> nice. Born and raised. You said nice before that, because <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't know that Northwesterners are nice. Exactly. <laughs> I grew up in Cleveland, um, Cleveland, Ohio, with my parents and my younger sister. I uh, spent my entire childhood there until I attended college at University of Michigan. And straight after that, moved to New York. But yeah, I had a great childhood, you know, growing up in Cleveland, really quintessential American childhood. And you're the oldest. So how young, how far apart is your sister from you? My sister is a year and a half younger. She lives in Denver, Colorado now, and she's a doctor. So we took very different career paths. (laughs) What did you want to be when you grew up? So my mother wanted me to be a doctor. She got my sister to be one instead. <laughs> because let me guess, because you're the oldest, you rebelled, then your sister probably felt guilty and was like, well, I guess I got to pick up the tab on that one. And now she's the doctor exactly. to make your, your mom feel good. <laughs> yeah, no, my mom, my mom is a nurse. My dad, an attorney, you know, my mom really wanted us to kind of follow in her footsteps in medicine and I remember she took me into the hospital and I was allowed to sit in on some surgeries and at that point realized that was not for me. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. That's a, yeah, I, I could never do that. My sister, it's funny, my sister actually, cause I dropped out of college. She probably felt a huge pressure to finish college cause my mom never went. So she was trying to get at least one of us to go. So younger sister picked up the tab on that one on my family, but <laughs> Exactly. It's funny how I think filling parents' siblings. dreams. <laughs> yeah, right. How many of us fall victim to that? A lot, actually, I think. Absolutely. But it's interesting, right? The dynamic I feel like between the younger and the older sisters sometimes. So you kind of you were the black sheep, it sounds like. Didn't want to get into medicine. Yes. And then I attended University of Michigan, even though my dad and my sister and much of my extended family went to Ohio State. Oh, so then I was again, the black sheep black again. Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised. There's a theme here. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, went to Michigan, studied business there. I was interested in business at a young age. Where did that come from? Like, how did you know too much about business if so much of your family was maybe kind of in the healthcare industry? Well, from a young age, I always loved retail. I always had jobs, you know, work ethic was something that was very important to my parents. And so 
I was a tennis coach and a waitress and always was, you know, doing something. I was definitely interested in retail from a young age. I remember going to Midway Mall near where I grew up in Cleveland with my extra money. And I loved, yes, I loved being in stores and, you know, buying products that I liked, but I loved watching what my sister and my friends would spend their money on and what other people would spend their money on. And I just always had an interest in it. I didn't know, you know, what all of the different retail careers were at the time, but I certainly liked customer behavior. So you went to University of Michigan, huge school, like enormous school. And what was your first job out of college? So my first job out of college, I worked for a boutique investment bank called Peter Solomon Company. And they have always had and still have today a big presence in the retail and consumer space. And I think that was something that drew me to, to that employer. Also, you know, Peter, the founder is still involved today, but he was very involved back then. And I sort of liked the small familial nature of it, you know, moving to New York City, big city, coming from a smaller town that was appealing. And it was kind of, it was great because I had studied finance in school, but I was really interested in retail and consumer and knew I was going to get to work on those types of projects at Peter Solomon Company. That's great. And so what were some of the insights that you gained from that experience? So many. I mean, I still, you know, look back on that as a really formative time in my career. It was my first job, but that is where I truly, I got to interact with a lot of, you know, CEOs, executives of different companies that we were either buying or selling and learn their business, you know, distill that into like an offering memorandum or, you know, whatever it might be, a pitch book, and really got to see all of the various retail careers and um, really opened my eyes to the possibilities of working in retail. That's a pretty like financial heavy, like finance background-ish spreadsheet kind of thing job, right? Like that, that's a pretty serious spreadsheet job. Did you enjoy that about it? Because I'm wondering, like you kind of enjoyed consumer behavior and kind of retail. And I think that oftentimes when people hear retail, they don't think spreadsheets. So I'm curious how that was for you. Yeah, I was always good at numbers, always good at math. And, you know, I studied that in college. And I think you do often pursue the things that you're successful at or can be successful at. And so I, that piece of it, I always had like an ease with it, but realized that wasn't all that I wanted to do. I kind of needed to find a way to marry it with some of the more creative pieces of retail, you know, consumer um, behavior and all of those things. And that's why I decided to go back to business school and take a couple of years and figure out what it was I wanted to do after I had seen all of these amazing possibilities, you know, during my first job. That's awesome. And so how did you go from that to Bloomingdale's? Is that kind of when you were thinking, okay, I want to get more into more of a creative role rather than kind of the analyst role? How did you land the job at Bloomingdale's? I left Peter Solomon and I attended Columbia Business School. So it was two over the course of the two years, I was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. 
I think when I wrote my essays, I thought I would end up in a finance role, you know, at a big retailer. And, but I took the time when I was at Columbia, what's great about that program is it's based in New York and a lot of students will intern as they go to school. And I did that. So I had a finance internship at Escada. I moved to Minneapolis for the summer and worked in product development at Target. And then my final semester, I had a merchandising internship at Saks. And when I did that, I was like, this is it. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is the job for me. Really, you know, combined product and creative and, you know, going to the retail floor and watching what people were buying and talking to associates with finance. So I really felt like it was a good marriage of what I liked and what I had done in the past. It's so funny because I think you're the first person I've talked to that actually loved that finance part of merchandising or buying because everybody else that I knew in the fashion world that was going for those roles was just liking shopping. Like they're like, I love shopping. So I'm going to be a buyer so I can shop for the stores. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, and I think it's like, you know, only going more and more in this direction, but merchants have a big responsibility that products sell and sell through at certain levels. And so, you know, the finance part really tells a lot of the story or like, maybe you believe people like, will like something, but the numbers always tell the truth and always tell the results. So you really, you know, good merchants have to have both sides. A hundred percent. No, absolutely. I think that's probably maybe like the rude awakening for people that get into that role and actually got into it for reasons that they initially thought were what it was and then realized the job is actually like 50% finance. Yeah, absolutely. You can't just be a picker. <laughs> right, right. No one cares about your taste. You know, it's like exactly. you, you're not shopping and you're shopping for the customer. Exactly, the <laughs> exactly. So what were some of the things, I mean, you were at Bloomingdale's for about four years. What was your, what are some of the takeaways that you have from that experience that has helped you as a leader and CEO? So I think, you know, the interesting thing about retail is you really have to start at the bottom. I think I was listening to some of your other guests and I've heard others say the same thing, but it's true. So, you know, I had already been working and then back studying for a few years when I started at Bloomingdale's, but I became an assistant buyer and I was keying in the purchase orders and spending time on the floor. And that was really just the best training. Being in one of those department store training programs for merchandising, it's like a great way to learn the business but you do have to start at the bottom. And I think that that's so important and kind of work your way up. Absolutely. So you worked your way up and then you decided to work for a French company, LVMH. I mean, everybody's heard of LVMH. So what was your experience like? Kind of why did you transition and how'd it go? I had been in a few different roles at Bloomingdale's by that time. And I had actually, in my last role, gone over to Bloomingdale's.com, which had just been taken over from the Bloomingdale's parent company, Macy's. And so a lot of us were kind of moving over there. And it, it was like much earlier in 
the direct-to-consumer business days. And so we were trying to figure out how it worked with stores and returns in stores and buy online and all of those things. So it was a really, really interesting time. And I was doing women's shoes. And so I got a call from Headhunter at LVMH and they were looking for someone to be the merchant for North and South America for women's shoes for Louis Vuitton. And I loved Bloomingdale's, but I, at the time, felt like it would be an interesting moment to see a different sector, you know, in that case, luxury. So I took the role and it was, you know, really great and really eye-opening and a totally different way of selling and and doing business versus a, a department store. In what way? Well, in one way, it's completely vertical. So, you know, I was working with the teams in Paris who were building the product and we were buying, you know, from our own brand, but assorting it for the U.S. market. So that was really different versus at Bloomingdale's, you know, going out and buying from, you know, anywhere from three to when I was doing women's shoes, like 50 different, different vendors. So it's a totally different way of thinking. Also, a big difference is that Louis Vuitton, you don't take markdowns. And so coming from department store world where you'll have big private sale events or, you know, sale on sale, and that's a way that you can kind of clear out of older products. You can't do that at, at Louis Vuitton. So you have to be much more detailed. Interesting. And so also it was a French company versus a U.S. based one. So what were some of the cultural differences maybe that you noticed there? At Bloomingdale's, they really teach you how to be a great merchant and like aggressively go after opportunities. You know, when you see something working, you go out and buy more of it and maximize the top side. LVMH is in many ways more restrained way of buying. Again, you know, you don't have the lever of of markdowns. It's also you know, working with your own internal teams in Paris, like much more consensus driven. So that was definitely a learning for me. I was used to kind of being the decision maker at Bloomingdale's, you know, we're going to go after this pump or, you know, this product and then getting to LVMH really had to sit back and listen and learn that business again, kind of start at the bottom. Right. Kind of start over, but in a different way. Exactly. Did you have a team? How big were your teams at Bloomingdale's and LVMH? So at Bloomingdale's, in the end, Bloomingdale's.com, I had a team of four. And then moving to LVMH, I, again, was at the bottom. I did not have a team. I think we shared an assistant between Charles and I. He was over men's shoes and I was over women's. So it was a small team, smaller team. And then you were there for six years though. So I imagine you probably grew to have a team at some point. What are some of the management skills that you learned at these two places? I think that you really get out of people what you put in. So, you know, taking the time to teach and I had some great teachers along the way. I remember my first boss at Bloomingdale's, Rosalia, you know, sitting with me, keying in the purchase orders. So I think remembering to take that time and how important it is, is, is super important. And 
listening to people, you know, asking them, taking the time again, don't just jump right into business, ask them how their day is going. And uh, it's important to like the people that you work with for sure. Right. Make those personal connections. Absolutely. Amazing. And then you were CEO of Giggle. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what Giggle is and how that opportunity came about? Sure. So at LVMH, I had a couple different roles. I moved over to LVMH fashion division. I was doing sales for a brand called Kenzo. And then I was back at Louis Vuitton doing client marketing in my last role there. And I wasn't actively looking for a new job, but some um, investors that I knew back from when I was at Peter Solomon Company were starting to invest in some retail brands and they purchased Giggle, which is a very interesting company out of a bankruptcy process. So Giggle had been an investor-owned business and it was a pretty big kids business in the Northeast. They had 10 stores. They had a really nice online business, but had never been profitable and had taken on a lot of, a lot of money from investors and eventually you know, people decided to stop putting money in and it went into a bankruptcy process and in the court. And so the investors that I knew were buying it out of that process and they, you know, wanted to restart it and kind of rethink the business model because it was a great brand and, you know, people had put in a lot of time and money into building it up and there were a lot of great aspects of it. So I worked with those investors to kind of rethink the business model and make it more modern and hopefully more profitable. And so how'd it go? Did it, did it end up going well? I know you were there, I think for around two years. What were yeah, some of the so, takeaways and how'd it go? No, it was great. And I mean, I learned so much from that experience. I mean, the first thing that we did was really sit down as a group and then also, you know, pull our friends and family because many of us had shopped Giggle over the years for, baby gifts or for our own children. And like I said, there were a lot of great aspects to the business. And so we really thought about what we wanted to keep and maybe what we didn't need. And so in the end, you know, we decided it should be a direct to consumer business and we should really lean into private label under the Giggle brand. And so that's what we did. So I spent those two and a half years building a website, you know, hiring a team, getting the brand back out there and then building a product line under, under the giggle brand, primarily baby and kids clothing. That sounds fun. Sounds like a super entrepreneurial um, venture there that you got to kind of build from scratch. Absolutely. It was, it was a great experience. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. 
Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon 38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So looking back on your kind of experience at Bloomingdale's and LVMH and Giggle, what are some of the things that have prepared you for being CEO of Draper James? I think really each experience has prepared me in a different way. At various times in my career, I decided to try something totally different. You know, I'd been a merchant when I was at Bloomingdale's and then LVMH for a long time. And I decided to take a sales job with Kenzo, as I had mentioned. And that was a really hard job, but really interesting. And, you know, you learn a lot being on kind of the other side of the table, selling in products, you know, all the buy. I had been a buyer, the buyers were my clients. And that was super interesting. And I still use the skills that I learned there today. I mean, I'm always selling Draper James, you know, whether it be to the end consumer, um, my ideas to the investors. I mean, I'm always selling. That is really interesting (laughs) that you got to be on both sides of the table. Like they say that all the time about investors and entrepreneurs, two sides of the table, but really it's the same in wholesale. So if you're selling your brand to a retailer, Or if you're the retailer who's buying from the brand, those are two different sides of the table and you got to sit at both. And that's really, uh, that's a very unique experience. I don't think that many people get that opportunity. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, to their credit, I think LVMH is, is is really willing to, you know, move people around and take a risk and let you try different things. And they have so many great brands. It's really a place that you can do that. So I think- you know, I like have learned so much at each job that I had. And I really use it all today now as CEO of Draper James, I have to think about, you know, supply chain, wholesale sales, finance, all of the different aspects. And so, you know, at each point in my career, I was more focused on one of those specific areas. And now, as CEO, really, I have to leverage all of them. So I think just not being afraid to try something different and fail and ask questions, that's been an important part of of getting to where I am today. And what when you say fail, what are some of the moments of failure that you've experienced in your career that were, were really big learning experiences for you? I think that being a merchant, being in retail, there are always these huge ups and downs. And you try a lot of different things. It could be products. It could be selling product in different places. It could be opening a certain retail store and not everything works. And some of the things that you are just so sure are going to work and are going to resonate with the end customer don't. And so I think not being afraid to really try those things in a measured way, you know, because 
I think you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. That's another important thing about retail. You want to have a lot of different things going on and projects going on, but really not being afraid to fail, not being able to afraid to try. And I've had many products or, you know, projects or stores that have not worked, you know, exactly as I wanted them to. Or like, can you give us a specific story of a time where you were really gun ho about something you really felt like this was it, we need to do this. And it just didn't pan out. At Giggle, we, you know, set out with the idea that private label would be the way we wanted to go. And we built up a manufacturing base and we had to invest in a lot of products, really, you know, substantial client database that we had purchased as part of the sale and kind of expected, you know, a certain level of results right out of the gate. And we didn't see that, you know, I think the interesting thing about kids is they get older very quickly. <laughs> All right. They grow out of their kids' sizes. And yeah, you know, some of that database yeah. had, had aged out and, you know, some of the customers that had been there even a few years before weren't there anymore. And so again, we really had to start from the bottom up and rebuilding the clients and like reaching new clients. And so pivoting, you know, we couldn't just depend on the existing database, we were doing trunk shows, we were getting really creative about ways to go out and, and meet new clients. And so again, is it a failure? I think you could look at it a lot of different ways. Did it meet our expectations exactly as we thought? No. And so we pivoted and, and tried different things to get us where we needed to be. What is the difference between a failure and something that didn't meet expectations? I don't like to think of projects, even if we end them as failures per se, like maybe it's just not the right path for the brand at this point. So I think, you know, even in that case, did I, do I consider, you know, the product that we built or the website a failure? No, just because it didn't meet the exact expectations that we laid out in the beginning. I recently, we closed one of our Draper James stores in Atlanta I don't think that that was a failure. You know, over the years, we connected with many clients there. We have a real customer base in Atlanta, but it was no longer the right location for us. And so we made the decision to close it. But it's not a failure. We learned a lot from it. And, you know, we'll take those learnings to the next projects. Right. Failure is such an interesting word. I think that like some people either like embrace it and they don't think anything of it, but failure is actually a pretty harsh word, right? Like it's going to be totally. pretty harsh. And yeah, I always go back and forth with like failure. What, what does it really even mean? Because it's always twisted to something that's been learned and a positive thing anyways, right? Like there's always good that comes from it, but you know, yeah, it's, it's a funny word. I feel like, especially yeah, absolutely. I think I don't like it either because <laughs> I don't want to be afraid and I don't want my team to be afraid right. to try different things. You know, like I said, I don't want to heavily invest in something that's unproven. I just don't think that that's a good business decision, but you know, in a measured way, I, I want to keep trying new things. Um, I think that's the only way you get to the next step, the next, the next, uh, stage. Right. 
testing. We need a new word for failure. It's more like testing. Everything is exactly. in life is a test. <laughs> Let's relax. Yeah. You know, it's like a failure because, you know, in the tech world or just in startup world in general, there's this culture around fail fast, you know, yeah. it's like, but do we have to be so hard on ourselves and call it failure? Like, let's just be honest. I don't know. I, I think <laughs> that's a funny word, but anyways, so the opportunity for you to become CEO of Draper James, how did that come about? And how did you meet Reese? Was that before you <laughs> like hanging out at a coffee shop? And she's like, Hey, I want to start this brand. You're like, let's do it. You know, like, how did this happen? So again, this was through my network back from when I was in finance. Was this another thing that Peter Solomon was like, Hey, that one didn't work, <laughs> but let's do this one. Like what? I know it all comes back to Peter Solomon company. <laughs> Does it really even for this? They, I had met some of the investors in Draper James through contacts in finance. And I was, you know, really interested in the brand. I thought it was a great brand. And I met them pre-pandemic. And then during the pandemic, I got a call from them and they were looking for a new CEO. And I was like, I want that job. That's the job for me. So I met Reese at that time and I started as the CEO of Draper James remotely in 2020, met my team remotely and, you know, just set about trying to define what the, the next steps for Draper James would be and how to get it to the next level. I feel like Peter Solomon's going to get a lot of emails and candidates being like, <laughs> I want to work for you because if I work for you, I'll probably be CEO one day. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's important to maintain your network. Retail is a really small world and you run into a lot of people that you may have worked with at some stage. So you have to be kind to everyone. <laughs> yeah, this is true. You don't want to be burning any bridges. Absolutely. So what were some of the things that you, you know, when you first kind of discovered Draper James, what were some of the changes that you wanted to make or some of the things that you wanted to implement right off the bat? So when I got to Draper James, they had in the past couple of years repositioned the product to be more affordable, more accessible, and I would say more commercial, like easier fitting than when they had first started the brand. And so a lot of this like important work from a product side and a team side were done. The executive team that was in place when I got to Draper James, they're all still here, you know, a year and a half later. And what I wanted to do was really grow the brand quickly because we had products that was working. We had a customer like brand fans, you know, who constantly were coming back to the brand year after year. And I was looking for opportunities to really drive growth very quickly. That, those were my objectives. And so how's that been going? Really, really good. So we put a lot of different projects in place. We wanted to diversify sales a bit, which we've done. So we are definitely and primarily a direct-to-consumer business. That's the majority of our business. We do that on our website, draperjames.com, and then also our four retail locations. So the biggest of which is in Nashville, 
And then we have a store in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a store in Houston Galleria and one in Mall of America. And then we also have, you know, a growing wholesale business. We work with different customers, including Nordstrom and Zappos. And more recently, we launched a really exciting collaboration with Kohl's, where we launched under a brand called Draper James RSVP in 500 Kohl's stores. So we just did that this spring 23. And it's been a really amazing project for us. You know, it's brought the brand to a whole new audience and it's been a lot of fun. So we're doing great. And I think, you know, really, again, just bringing, just growing the brand, you know, very rapidly at this point and bringing it to new customers. So the brand that's in Kohl's is kind of a different brand of Draper James. And you said it's called Draper James 513, like 513? No, RSVP. So RSVP to our Draper James garden party um, is kind of the inspiration. And, you know, it really looks and feels very much like Draper James mainline, but that brand is exclusive to Kohl's. Um, the price points are about 30% less expensive than Draper James mainline. And yeah, it's been a super exciting project. You know, we don't want to ever think of it like a diffusion brand in the old sense of the word. We want it to feel really true to us and for clients to be able to shop both lines and mix and match pieces. So we have a variation of the jacket that you have on there in store currently. Great jacket, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> we like it. Yes, I like it. So what, you know, CEOs carry an enormous amount of responsibility, right? There's so much on your shoulders. You're really kind of, you're the captain of the ship. What do you do to reduce stress? So love my Peloton. <laughs> I think I do a Peloton every single morning. I was going to say, is it on the daily or what? Yeah, yeah on the daily. Sometimes listening to a podcast and On kind of half doing While it. While listening but... to Stairway to CEO. Exactly. <laughs> On the Peloton. Spend time with my kids, you know, travel. I think it's important to have a balance. And I want that for myself. I want that for my team. But again, I wouldn't like call my job stressful. It, that's not like the first thing that would come to mind because I do love what we're doing so much. And I'm again, like it doesn't stress me out to fail sometimes or, you know, test F word, F bombs. <laughs> no. So what do you, so what would exactly. be the first word you use to describe it? If it's not stressful. I mean, I'm just really passionate about what we're doing and I just, I love I love retail. I love selling. I think it's a big part of my personal identity. Like I have a lot of friends in the industry from over the years and I just find it incredibly exciting. So I think exciting would be potentially the first word that would come to mind. And this is your second CEO role. So I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think makes a great CEO? Being a great team player, you know, I would never want to ask people on my team to do something that I wouldn't do. So I think you have to absolutely have to be willing to get your hands dirty, unpack boxes, like 
take the business trips. Like I, you know, spend time on the floor in the stores. I think that that stuff is so, so important. You can't just be, you know, directing traffic. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so how do you think you've grown personally as a leader? Like when you think about your leadership style and challenges you've overcome throughout your career to get to where you are, you know, how have you grown personally? I've gotten so much from each of the roles, but maybe you do, you can, you are calmer over time. You've seen these things happen. You've, you've seen situations where something didn't work as well as you wanted it to. And so just kind of being that like calm sent like person of reason for the team um, when they might be stressing out about something, I think I've gotten better at that over time for sure. Because back in the day, are you saying you would freak out a little bit more and maybe keep it to yourself and not like have many people to talk to and stress out a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that. If you could change anything about your career journey, what would you change? I would take each role a little slower. I think early in my career, and that's something I say to the young people on my team is like, enjoy it. I was always wanting to get to the next step, you know, the next buying role at Bloomingdale's, the next step at LVMH. And I think just, you know, knowing that we all get where we're supposed to be in the end, and we can all find these really exciting roles that make us want to get out of bed every day. We all get there. And so take it slow. That's funny. And so I think everybody also wants to know what's it like working with Reese Witherspoon? I know that she's, uh, you know, I guess the primary, maybe largest investor. It's her, I think company, it's her brand, right? So what's it like, what's it like working with her? She's really great. And, um, I get asked that question a lot as you can imagine. And I do always say what you see is what you get. I mean, I think that she's really authentic person. She really, you know, cares about the women that work for her, all of the people that work for her. She cares about the product that we put out there. And that really shows in, in what she's created. And she's wonderful and supportive, you know, founder to work with really involved. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining the show before we kind of wrap up. What kind of career advice do you have for those tuning in, you know, thinking of jumping into or trying to pursue the CEO seat? Go work for Peter Solomon company. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Work for Peter Solomon. (laughs) No, I think, um, don't be afraid to try different things. Like I said, you know, as a CEO, like you do have to look after so many different aspects of the business. And so I think getting those varied experiences earlier in your career is only going to serve you very well if this is where you want to end up. And so I think, you know, seeking out those opportunities and those experiences is is super important. That's awesome. And so what's next for Draper James before we wrap? We're going to keep growing. Um, We've announced we're extending our partnership with Kohl's. So we're really excited for that. And just laying the groundwork on what that looks like. And yeah, we're going to keep growing and keep building awesome product and, and bringing the brand to more customers. Cool. Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your career journey and becoming CEO. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.